Chapter 61 Stub Kills a Whale If to Starbuck, the apparition of the squid was a thing of importance, to Quigquag it was quite a different object. When you see him, Quid, said the savage, honing his harpoon in the bow of the bowsprit boat, then you quick see him, Parm Whale. The next day was exceedingly still and sultry, and with nothing special to engage them, the Pequod's crew could hardly resist the spell of sleep induced by such a vacancy. For this part of the Indian Ocean through which we were voyaging is not what whalemen call a lively ground. That is, it affords few glimpses of porpoises, dolphins, flying fish, and other vivacious denizens of more stirring waters than those off the Rio de Plata or the inland grounds off Peru. It was my turn to stand at the foremast head, and with my shoulders leaning against the slackened royal shrouds, and to fro I idly swayed in what seemed an enhanced air. No resolution could withstand it. In that dreamy mood, losing all consciousness, at last my soul went out of my body, though my body still continued to sway as a pendulum will, long after the power which first moved it withdrawn. Ere forgetfulness altogether came over me, I had noticed that the seamen at the main and mizzen mastheads were already drowsy, so that at last all three of us lifelessly swung from the spars, and for every swing that we made there was a nod from below from the slumbering helmsman. The waves, too, nodded with their indolent crests, and across the wide trance of the sea, east nodded to west, and the sun over all. Suddenly bubbles seemed bursting beneath my closed eyes, like vices and hands grasped around the shrouds. Some invisible, gracious agency preserved me. With a shock I came back to life, and lo, close under our lee, not forty fathoms off, a gigantic sperm whale lay rolling in the water, like a capsized hull of a frigate, his broad, glossy back of an Ethiopian hue, glistening in the sun's rays like a mirror but lazily undulating in the trough of the water, and even and anon tranquility spouting his vapory jet, the whale looked like a portly burger, smoking his pipe of a warm afternoon. But the pipe, poor whale, was thy last. As if struck by some enchanter wand, the sleepy ship and every sleeper in it at once started into wakefulness, and more than a score of voices from all parts of the vessel simultaneously with the three notes from aloft shouted forth the accustomed cry as the great fish slowly and regularly spouted the sparkling brine into the air. Clear away the boats, luff! cried Ahab, and obeying his own order, he dashed the helm down before the helmsman could handle the spokes. The sudden acclamations of the crew must have alarmed the whale, and ere the boats were down, majestically turning, he swam away to the leeward, but with such a steady tranquility and making so few ripples as he swam, and thinking after all, he might not as yet be alarmed. Ahab gave the order that not as an oar should be used, and no man speak but in whispers. So seated like Ontario Indians on the gunwales of the boats, we swiftly but silently paddled along, the calm not admitting of the noiseless sails being set. Presently, as we thus glided in the chase, the monster perpendicularly flitted his tail forty feet into the air, and then sank out of sight like a tower swallowed up. There goes flukes, was a cry, an announcement immediately followed by Stubbs producing his match and igniting his pipe, for now a respite was granted. After the full interview of his sounding had elapsed, the whale rose again, and, being now in advance of the smoker's boat and much nearer to it than any of the others, Stubb counted upon the honor of the creature. 
It was obvious now that the whale had at length become aware of his pursuers. All silence of cautiousness was therefore no longer of use. Paddles were dropped, and oars came loudly into play, and still puffing at his pipe, Stubb cheered on his crew to the assault. Yes, a mighty change had come over the fish. All alive to his jeopardy, he was going head out, that part obliquely projecting from his mad yeast which he brewed. It will be seen in some of the other places of what a very little substance the entire interior of a sperm whale's enormous head consists, though apparently the most massive, it is by far the most buoyant part of him, so that with ease he elevates it into the air and invariably does so when going at the utmost speed. Besides, such is the breadth of the upper part of the front of his head, and such the tapering cutwater formation of the lower part, but by obliquely elevating his head, he thereby may be said to transform himself from a bluff-bowed sluggish guillot into a sharp-pointed New York pilot boat. Start her, start her, my men. Don't hurry yourselves. Take plenty of time, but start her. Start like a thunderclap, that's that. That's all, cried Stubb, sputtering out the smoke as he spoke. Start her, now. Give him the long, strong stroke, Tashtego. Start her, Tash, my boy, start her. All, but keep cool, keep cool, cucumbers is the word. Easy, easy, only start her like grim death and grinning devils and raise the buried dead perpendicular out of their graves, boys, that's that. That's all, start her. Woo-hoo, wahee, screamed the gay header in reply, raising some old war whoop in the skies as every oarsman in the strained boat involuntarily bounced forward with the one tremendous leading stroke which the eager Indian gave. But his wild screams were answered by others quite as wild. Kihi, kihi! yelled Degu, straining forwards and backwards on his seat like a pacing tiger in his cage. Kalu, kalu! howled Quigqueg, as if smacking his lips over a mouthful of the grenadier's steak. And thus with oars and yells the keels cut the sea. Meanwhile, Stubb, retaining his place in the van, still encouraged his men on the onset, all while puffing and smoking from his mouth. Like desperados, they tugged and they strained, till the welcome cry was heard. Stand up, Tashtego, give it to him. The harpoon was hurled. Stern all! The oarsmen backed water. The same moment, something went hot and hissing along every one of their wrists. It was the magical line. An instant before, Stubb had swiftly caught two additional turns with it round the loggerhead, whence, by reason of its increased rapid circling, the hempen blue smoke now jetted up and mingled with the steady fumes of his pipe. As the line passed around and round the loggerhead, so also, just before reaching that point, it blisteringly passed through and through both Stubb's hands, from which the handcloth or squares of quilted canvas sometimes worn at these times, had accidentally dropped. It was like holding an enemy's sharp, two-edged sword by the blade, and the enemy all the time striving to wrest it out of your clutch. "'Wet the line! Wet the line!' cried Stubb to the tub oarsman. Cried Stubb to the tub oarsman, him seated by the tub, who, snatching off his hat, dashed the sea water into it. Partly to show the indispensableness of this act, it may be here stated that, in the old Dutch fishery, a mop was used to dash the running line with the water. In many other ships, a wooden pegan or baler, is set apart for that purpose. Your hat, however, is most convenient.' More turns were taken so that the line began holding in place. The boat now flew from the boat now flew through the boiling water, like a shark all fins. Stubb and Tashtego were changed places, stem and stern, a staggering business truly in the rocking commotion. 
from the vibrating line extending the entire length of the upper part of the boat, and from its now being more tight than a harp string, you would have thought the craft had two keels, one cleaving the water, the other the air, as the boat churned. On through both opposing elements at once, a continual cascade played at the bows, a ceaseless whirling eddy in her wake, and, at the slightest motion from within, even but of a little finger, the vibrating cracking craft canted over her spasmatic gunwale into the sea. Thus they rushed, each man with might and main, clinging to his seat to prevent being tossed into the foam, and the tall form of Tashtego at the steering oar, crouching almost double, in order to bring down his center of gravity. Whole Atlantics and Pacifics seemed pass as though they shot on her way, till the length of the whale somewhat slackened his flight. Haul in, haul in, cried Stubb to the bowsman, and, facing round toward the whale, all hands began pulling the boat up to him, while yet the boat was still being towed on. Soon, Ranging up by his flank, Stubb firmly planted his knee in the clumsy cleat, darting dart after dart into the flying fish, as the word of command, the boat alternately sterning out of the way of the whale's horrible wallow, and then ranging up from another fling, the red tide now poured from all sides of the monster like brooks down a hill. His tormented body rolled, not in brine but in blood, which bubbled and seethed from furlongs behind in their wake. The slanting sun playing upon his crimson pond in the sea sent back its reflection into every face so that they all glowed to each other like red men. And while the whale, jet after jet of white smoke, was agonizingly shot from the spiracle of the whale and vehemently puff and puff from the mouth of the excited headsman, as at every dart hauling it upon crooked lance by the line attached to it, Stubb straightened it again and again by a few rapid blows against the gunwale, then again and again sent it into the whale. Pull up, pull up, he now cried to the bowsman, as the waning whale relaxed in his wrath. Pull up, close to! and the boat ranged along the fish's flank. When reaching far over the bow, Stubb slowly churned his long, sharp lance into the fish and kept it there, carefully churning and churning, as if cautiously seeking to feel after some gold watch that the whale might have swallowed, and which he was fearful of breaking ere he could not hook it out. But the gold watch he sought was the innermost life of the fish, and now it was struck, for... Starting from into the trance, into the unspeakable thing, call his flurry, the monster horribly wallowed in his blood, overwrapped himself in the impenetrable mad boiling spray, so that the imperiled craft instantly dropped astern, had much ado blindly to struggle out from that frenzied twilight into the clear air of the day. And now, abating in his fury, the whale once more rolled out into view, surging from side to side, spasmatically dilating and contracting his spout hole, with sharp, cracking, agonized respirations. At last, gush after gush of clotted red gore, as if had been purple lees of red wine shot into the freighted air, and fall back again, ran dripping down the motionless flanks into the sea. His heart had burst. He's dead, Mr. Stubb said Degu. Yes, both pipes smoked out. And withdrawing his own from his mouth, Stubb scattered the dead ashes over the water, and for a second stood thoughtfully eyeing the vast corpse he had made.
Thanks for listening to Moby Dick Pod. If you've liked what you've heard so far, consider subscribing or leaving us a rating on Apple Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.